Welcome, welcome. Uh, we are going to uh, just very briefly talk about, uh, I'll remind us of our discussion from last week, and then we will uh, continue on. If you haven't been with us, we have, uh, we have been discussing, doing a lot of uh, historical uh, discussion, um, especially uh, since about 1950, 1960. Uh, we did an overview of the, uh, the worldview of Marxism and talked about the cultural, political, economic ramifications of that as we consider um, all of that in light of a biblical worldview uh, that was utilized in order to found uh, Western civilization. And in that discussion, we've hit on uh, several of what we uh, call the ideas of the neo-Marxists or the new Marxists who uh, came out about in the, uh, especially in the interwar period between World War I and World War II in places like Germany and France and the ideas that developed there, uh, ideas uh, called critical theory and we haven't gotten there yet but um, also postmodernism. And so as we've talked about these things, we've discussed their ideas as they came into America specifically, and in doing so, what that has done to erode uh, a foundation of, uh, of a biblical Christian, uh, or we could say Judeo-Christian idea of culture and life uh, in various institutions. And if you'll recall, a few weeks ago, we talked about how uh, the, the stated goal of those who were promoting the ideas of critical theory was uh, that the, their ideas, which are anti-Western civilization, and part of that being anti-Christian, uh, were to do what they called a long march through the institutions, and to bring their ideas into the various institutions of culture and propagate those in a way that they would be widely dispersed and that people would begin to believe these things and seek to implement uh, their desires. Remember, uh, Marxism essentially failed uh, after World War I. It was very clear that there was not going to be some great Marxist revolution and an uprising of the uh, proletariat against the bourgeoisie. And as a result, they had to find other ways to try and get their Marxist ideology into uh, the general culture. And so now it's not through a revolution uh, of a physical sort or even an economic sort at first. It's going to be a revolution of ideas. And so entering into the institutions, we talked about academia. Um, we've talked uh, briefly about things like entertainment and media. And, uh, and obviously all of this, we've talked about uh, the church and ideas of how um, how these ideas are starting to influence the church, and we'll, we'll really get into that uh, as, we, as we move along. Uh, last week we started uh, to talk about uh, the family, and specifically we dealt with uh, the ideas of sex and sexuality. Um, I talked about uh, the ideas of one of the critical theorists, uh, um, Herbert Marcuse, and him taking the ideas of, um, of Sigmund Freud and seeking to adopt those and, uh, and present those in such a way uh, that really sparked uh, what became known as uh, the sexual revolution in the 1960s. And, uh, and so we started to trace that out and, uh, and talked about, again, and I've emphasized this several times uh, throughout our discussion, 
is that ideas don't just start. They don't just happen because someone uh, thought, you know, hey, let's start a sexual revolution. This had a genesis somewhere, and it developed, it built over time. And so I wanted to show, and most people don't even realize, that this is where that began with these ideas. Um, the, The sexual revolution of the 1960s was just as much about propagating Marxism as it was anything else. The idea was that people were being um, oppressed. Their identity as an individual was being being oppressed, and so they needed to be liberated. And their liberation was going to come through uh, as many sexual encounters as they could could have. And so uh, that really sparked this whole revolution, which also gave rise, and again, we'll talk about this later, but it also gave rise to things like uh, feminism and, uh, and those, um, those types of ideas. And so uh, I want to I continue in that and move a little bit off of the ideas of sex and sexuality, and, um, and there we talked about kind of the move toward um, the normalization of things that in the past have not been normalized in terms of sexuality. And, uh, and today, spend some more time talking about uh, the family unit as an institution. Um, obviously, what the Bible says about that, what the critical theorists um, were seeking to, uh, seeking to propagate, and in that, uh, where we see uh, these things playing out today. And again... <clears throat> The idea I mentioned to you was to bring chaos into order, right? A lot of times we hear the idea of we want to bring order in the midst of chaos. Well, the critical theorists were very, uh, were very explicit in saying we want to introduce chaos into order because we want to disrupt the system as it is because the system as it is is oppressive, People are being held down and they don't even know it because they're so influenced by these ideas of the West like capitalism and consumerism and, uh, and entertainment and leisure. Um, these things are actually oppressive. And so we need to bring chaos into this and mix it all up. So then people start asking questions and saying, well, maybe what we've had all along isn't good. It's not right. We need something else. We need to start thinking about ways that we can be free from these oppressive systems. And, uh, and my contention is that they've been very effective at doing that, and we're, we're seeing a lot of that play out today. Um, so remember we said that a lot, of, a lot of ideas started to be talked about as a result of, of uh, several writings that were being distributed and taught in, uh, in the academy, and, uh, and one of these men, Marcuse, became a hero. He was a hero of um, far, uh, far left-leaning uh, people politically, but also on uh, many college campuses. And, uh, and so that's where we start to see these ideas of liberation coming along. And so liberation in the 1960s, remember we said, was about um, sexual experiences. But now liberation in 2019 is about... Um, redefining biological realities. Now again, we didn't get to a discussion about people determining um, not only whether or not they're a man or a woman, but whether or not they want to identify as anything else. That didn't just come out of nowhere. (laughs) This This has been a growing theme. This has gained momentum since, especially 
these conversations about sexuality in the 60s. And so ideas now are, uh, it's actually the only, the only really blasphemous thing to say in culture is that there is such a thing as a man or a woman who identifies as a man or a woman because that is not only uh, what they think or feel, but because it is a biological reality that you cannot defy no matter um, what kind of plastic surgery you do. You are what God has created you to be. And now all of that's being questioned um, to such the extent that it's being codified in law. So in the state of New York, in, this, in New York City, if you work for the city, uh, you can be... Um, you can be punished, you can be fired, you can face fines and everything else if you don't identify a person according to their preferred gender pronouns. Uh, that's a big deal in Canada, especially, and that is federal law now, and you can be brought before a human rights tribunal if you refuse to identify someone of one of the preferred 96, I believe now, uh, identities. And so what all of those are, I couldn't even tell you. Anything from male to female uh, to, um, uh, to gender blender to, um, to homosexual to transsexual to Z, Z and, and Zay and all of these sorts of things that people want to be called. If you don't do that, uh, you, face, you face penalty. So I think that's a pretty good example of chaos being introduced into order. Uh, things have really, uh, have, have really changed. So, when a culture is sexually liberated, the definition of family is going to change dramatically. Obviously, it has to. Um, in the West, uh, I mentioned last week, um, some, some things have happened uh, in the last few years uh, that last 20 years would have been shocking. Um, the progress that has been made with regard to homosexuality uh, in culture uh, has, uh, has happened at a breakneck speed. Um, there are now attempts to normalize pedophilia. Last year, a woman gave a talk at TED. I don't know, a lot of you may be familiar with TED Talks. Uh, people get up and they do their 20-minute spiel on whatever their ideas are. And she gave a talk on how um, pedophilia, while not uh, something that we want to celebrate in our culture, is a normal um, place in life for a person to operate. Uh, that it is a natural inclination that some people have. And so instead of criminalizing them or keeping them out of society, uh, that we ought to accept them for who they are and just do a better job at protecting our children if we don't want them to be a part of that. Simultaneously, you have groups, uh, one group called NAMBLA, which is the North American Man-Boy Love Association, who is seeking to uh, reduce uh, the age of consent to the age of 12. And so at that point, they believe that young boys, especially are old enough to give consent because this is, again, their natural inclination. If you recall back to the ideas when we talked about Sigmund Freud, what did he say? That the real problem is that we are suppressing sexual identities from infancy. Remember we talked about his ideas of polymorphous perversity? That everyone has these perverse ideas from, from birth. And the real problem isn't that we have those ideas, it's that culture and society seeks to suppress them. And so, 
Therefore, we need liberation. And so you have these organizations arguing for such things uh, because they're just following the logic of these ideas. Uh, Last year, the Supreme Court in Canada, their national Supreme Court, uh, gave full legal rights uh, to, um, to bestiality um, after a case was brought before them. So, um, again, these things are very disturbing, as they should be. But when this is the case, when this is going on, uh, again, it's really going to change the way that a culture thinks about the family structure. Right? It was just a couple of years ago now... Uh, that, um, that everything happened with the Obergefell case in the United States where the Supreme Court essentially gave, uh, gave legal um, precedence for, uh, for now federal, uh, federal recognition of homosexual marriages. And so all of these definitions begin to change. And Marcuse's ideals in the 1960s are being realized. Um, so, really, a fixed family unit now of two parents, uh, a dad and a mom, a woman and a man, uh, having children uh, that are raised up in that home that stays intact, and then from there they go on to marry someone of the opposite sex and have children of their own. This whole idea is being questioned, is being undermined, and uh, is really something that is becoming a thing of the past in Western uh, discussions. And those who hold to these more uh, so-called progressive ideas would say that finally the West is making progress away from this so-called oppression, away from the foundational family norms that we have come to expect uh, as being a simple part of our society. So uh, one more idea I want to add to this, and then we, we have some things for discussion here. Um, another another writer slash thinker that sort of comes into all of this is a guy by the name of Adorno. That's his last name. And he, he had all of these traits. He had this, uh, this scale, and on this scale, he, he came up with uh, nine traits that he said uh, were likely to make a person a fascist if these uh, were a part of uh, their normal, everyday life. If we could identify these traits in a person, the more of them they had, the more likely they were to become fascists. It was his fascist scale. And so he wanted to identify uh, what was going on in a person's life that led to uh, what they identified to be very radical ideas. So um, they looked at things like uh, conventional ideas. If you held strongly to conventional, traditional ideas of, of how life should be, that was one of the traits of fascism. Um, if you submitted to authority without question, um, so if you were a child who did what their parents asked, for example, um, then uh, you, were, uh, you were likely to become a fascist at some point. If you also expressed authoritarian aggression, if you were an authority... And you demanded things of people and expected from them what you asked of them. Um, ideas like anti-intellectualism, which they would have defined, not in the same way that we do, but um, one who doesn't have uh, the desire or the capacity to, um, to think at what they assumed were very high levels of philosophy and, and, and everything else. 
Um, if you had uh, superstitious ideas, now what do you assume they defined as superstitious? Yes, anything having to do with God, anything having to do with uh, the supernatural world, uh, you know, the things that Christians talk about normally as an everyday part of life. So we are more prone to become fascists. Um, anything that had to do with power or toughness. Uh, so if you, uh, if you want to teach your sons, for example, uh, that young men need to be tough, uh, they, need to, uh, they need to be ones who are protectors. Uh, they need to be able to, um, to take a blow and keep going kind of thing. Um, that, those are fascist tendencies. We don't want to teach anyone to be tough. Uh, that's, that's going to lead to fascism. Um, destructiveness and cynicism. Uh, and again, this is uh, their being very destructive, uh, and, and that was something that was uh, promoted, uh, but they're talking about any, uh, any kind of physical way. So if, if, uh, if a young boy uh, gets a lot of energy out by, uh, you know, going out and doing things boys do, hacking down trees or throwing mud clods or whatever, um, that's very destructive. We need to watch out for that. Um, other ideas, uh, all kinds of ideas we could look at. Exaggerated concerns about sexuality. So the fact that we're even having this conversation and raising these things I've mentioned as concerns, that's actually a tendency toward fascism, apparently. So you start to see what all of this is just completely counter, seeking to run completely counter to what we identify as normal life in society. Sean. Well, right, so obviously we're, we can look at all of this and find a significant um, hypocrisy in how things are being presented. That's always going to be the case with these kinds of ideas, that um, it's, it's generally not the case that they would be self-assessing when it comes to the presentation of these things. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. He's asking what, what was going on in the church when all of these ideas are being presented, especially in academy and everything else. Well, quite honestly, with regard to these questions, not much. Um, in large part because at the time, especially early on, um, like most things, it wasn't happening necessarily in broad public discussion, but a lot of this was happening in the academy, in the universities. It's being taught in the schools, and the idea there, and this has been a tactic uh, for, uh, on, in any idea, and how do we get these ideas to become more mainstream? Well, you go after the, the, the young, young, impressionable minds, seek to educate them in these ideas. And uh, a lot of us have been to college, and so, um, you know, when you're 18 years old and you roll up to class for the first time, and someone in front of you has a, a Ph.D., and they're put up there as the expert, and they've been doing this for 15, 20 years. They've read all the literature. They know everything that's going on. They must be right. And so I just need to listen to them, and not only listen to them, I need to think about what their ideas are and start to incorporate those into my own life. And then all of a sudden, um, you become very adamant about these ideas. And now I'm going to take these out. So as far as the church was concerned, uh, as these things are being discussed, um, it, there, wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of concern because it just wasn't so mainstream at that point. And it's an issue of 
by the time it does become mainstream, now everyone's playing catch-up to figure out, first of all, what in the world are they even talking about when they say, you know, someone is, um, they're propagating traditional ideas of cisgendered heteronormative uh, sexuality. Like, I don't even know what those words mean. I have to get out a, a dictionary and look all this up before we can even have the discussion. Meanwhile, you have a, a whole army of young people uh, marching along with these ideas, and, uh, and they're, starting to, they're starting to spread. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Exactly. That's a great point. And, and that's not, that's not uh, distinct from all of this. And he was talking about the, the drug scene at this time as well is, is uh, very rampant in the West and people are experimenting with all kinds of chemicals and, and their after effects in their bodies. So uh, that, that helped to normalize some of these things as well because the effects of those on the human mind and body. Now all of a sudden I'm, I'm liberated even physically, not just sexually, but I, I'm liberated from my own mind. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you talk to people or you hear people who do things that are especially like these kind of psychedelic drugs and everything. That's the point, right? To, to think differently, to free my mind, to sort of step outside of myself and have some different experience. So, um, so all of this stuff is going on at the same time. And unfortunately, to your question, Illuminae, is um, the, the church is sort of in the dark about a lot of it. And this is one of the points I've really wanted us to be thinking about, is it's, to, it's not to the church's uh, assistance in any way that we just sort of sit back and remain in the dark about ideas of things going on in culture. That doesn't mean we, certainly we don't want to adopt them. We also don't want to be alarmists and anytime anyone says anything crazy that we jump all over it. But we need to be informed. We need to know what's going on. We need to know why people are thinking the way they're thinking and what they're thinking about. And the very reason why we're going through all this because the tactics of the evil one with regard to the church aren't that someone shows up all of a sudden and starts talking to us about the evils of heteronormative behavior. That's not the way that the devil functions if he wants to attack a church. It's very subtle. And if we can't recognize the subtleties because we don't even know the ideas behind them, uh, then uh, that's really how false teaching begins to influence the church. That's how these things enter in. So um, let me... Let me talk about one of the ways that we have seen that with regard to the family um, because all of these ideas about how do we keep ourselves from becoming fascists. And that was a big fear at the time, right? Because, again, now we're post-World War II. We've seen the fascism of Germany. And remember, all the critical theorists were, uh, were German Jews that came to America. And so... They're standing in front of their students and writing books saying, hey, this could have happened to me. It didn't happen to me because we were able to escape. And so here's all the things we identified. And one of the hallmarks of these kinds of ideas is if you are identified as a person who is a victim in any way, then you become an authority on those matters. Whether you've read anything, whether you know anything, whether you've interacted on any level in these things, you're a victim, therefore you are an authority. And so people start to listen. 
And so now you hear, you hear it in conversation where people will say, well, as a whatever, as a woman, or as a gay man, or as a whatever, and we lay out what we are, and then we feel free to speak on those matters. Because, again, I've identified my status, and since you know my status, I can now tell you um, what I believe on this. And you're supposed to hear me and believe that because of who I am. And so they were doing that very thing. And in, in so doing, we need to avoid fascism. And so what we need to do is to destroy these things on the F scale, the fascist scale. Um, so, uh, for example, we need to look at how we raise our children. And so any demands that a child submit to the authority of their parents, and specifically their father, that is oppressive. We can't oppress our children by having them um, follow the demands of their parents. That's what got us into this mess in the first place. Uh, that they have some sense that they can't think for themselves and they can't do for themselves. They need someone else to uh, tell them how that's going to be. Um, likewise, when they don't do those things, that their consequence is some form of punishment. And not only punishment, but a physical punishment of a spanking. We, we, we need to move away from that because that's just reinforcing these fascist tendencies that if you don't do what I want you to do, that there's going to be a physical punishment. And so uh, these kinds of ideas, and there's all sorts of things we could, uh, we could discuss, they need to be pushed down. Um, and so the idea that was being promoted was, you know, it's not really that parents... Uh, that children love their parents and want to submit to the authority of their parents. It's actually that children hate their parents and are scared of their parents, and so they're just trying to hang on until they can get out, and then they will be able to be freed up. And so if you really want your children to love you, then stop suppressing them. Liberate them. Let them live the life that they want to live. Now, that should sound a little bit crazy to all of us, but if we're honest and we look at sort of the cultural trends in parenting, is that not exactly what we have seen? Is that not exactly how people have parented? Uh, that's, that's sort of the norm in, in many ways. And so, thankfully... Early on, Adorno's work was criticized to a great deal. Nevertheless, it was very influential. And all of this discussion was so influential that in the last few years, some people have begun to study the influences of it. And, uh, and one, uh, one dissertation I wrote, he, he made the claim that uh, this work by Adorno with regard to fascism and the family structure is, uh, to date the most read, the most widely published, the most analyzed work in the world of social psychology that has ever been written. And so to think that this is just something some crazy guy wrote in his basement and nobody had anything to do with is, uh, is quite naive. It, its influence is huge. And so uh, other things that were identified, things like having pride in your family, to tell your children that you were proud of them for the things that they were doing, or that you would stand up and say, I'm, I'm a Kennecott, and I'm really thankful for that. I'm proud of that. 
Now, if you were all able to say that, you would be proud of that as well. <laughs> but to have that sort of commitment to one's family, that's a fascist way of thinking. Um, they came right out and said it. A commitment to Christianity. Uh, you have fascist tendencies if you're committed to Christianity. Uh, traditional gender roles, we've talked about that, is a tendency toward fascism. Attitudes uh, toward uh, normal practices of, of sex, uh, particularly related to that being confined to uh, the marriage of a man and a woman. Uh, ideas of patriotism. If you had any affection uh, for your country, uh, then you were, uh, you were going to tend toward fascism. Uh, in fact, uh, in many ways, turning that on its head, if you didn't do your best to find all of the evil in your nation and, um, and present that as being something that is oppressing people as opposed to liberating them, uh, then you are definitely prone to be a fascist. So all of these factors that were previously unquestioned things, nobody ever questioned why someone was proud of being a part of their own family or why they would be committed to Christian ideas or... Uh, or why they would think it's normal to be uh, born a man and continue throughout your life to identify as a man. Um, nobody questioned that. Um, no one questioned uh, why we thought it was good and right uh, to maintain uh, that, um, that sexual interaction should be confined to a marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, no one really questioned the fact that a person born into a society would want to see the good of that society and to see that flourish and to be proud of what they're a part of and to see that continue uh, to flourish, especially in the West. That, that, those things were, were unquestioned in terms of what they would call traditional values or traditional ideas. But Adorno was arguing that all of these are indicators of fascist tendencies. And so we need to get away from those. And so one of the ways that you start to see that happen as it's influencing the institutions, we've talked about the academy, but what about entertainment? A lot of people don't think about this, but how did, how did the portrayal of the family in entertainment change through the years? Um, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, who were the, uh, who were the, the heroes of the family? If you watched a television show and there was a family, who was the hero? The dad, right? By and large, it was the dad. What were some of those shows? Yeah, Leave it to Beaver is everyone's uh, go-to example, right? Ward Cleaver, was, he was always wise, right? He always had the right answer. Uh, he went to work during the day, 9 to 5. Mom stayed home, took care of the kids. Uh, you know, Wally and, uh, and, and Beaver did something dumb that day and had to come home and be corrected and, and sit down and you hear the music in the background while Ward set him straight and gave him a kiss on the head and sent him on, right? Dad knew what to do and Mom always said, you just wait till your father gets home. He'll deal with this. He knows, what, he knows what's going on, right? Yeah. The Andy Griffith Show is another one, right? Andy, always, always helping out, not just in his own family, but the whole community, right? Andy Griffith knew what to do, and everyone was going to turn to him. Batman. <laughs> I haven't thought about Batman, but... Well, yeah. <laughs> What's that? My Three Sons? How about this one? It's in the title. Father Knows Best. 
<laughs> That's the title of a TV show. Right? So by the 1970s, these things were now being considered, well, this is part of tradition past. We need to move on from this because we are propagating these traditional ideals that we now identify as oppressive. They're relics of the past. This wise, breadwinning father who goes to work all day, who interacts with his children in the evenings, who gives wise lessons on life, all of that is outdated. We don't need that anymore. We don't want that anymore. So the new standard for entertainment became step families, mothers who were very adamant about working outside the home, uh, and then you see uh, fathers moving into the home to start working. And so there's, you start to see this, this switch. Where do we see those things? Uh, the Brady Bunch became very popular. The Cosby Show. All in the family. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah, so now you see, now we start to introduce the ideas of race and racism and how all of that's influencing uh, the discussion, family ties, right? So all of these things are starting to become the norm in terms of what do we sit the whole family down uh, in the evening to sit and, and watch together? It's not Leave it to Beaver anymore. Those are black and white. Who wants to watch a black and white show when we could watch, uh, when we could watch the Brady Bunch? That's, in, that's not only in color. That's in lime green and bright pink. <laughs> We're going to watch this, Right? And it's, now we're showing this is normal. This is normal that these families come together in the way that they do. Well, we, we need to make progress on that then. Progressive traditions um, are no longer ideal anymore either. The idea of a step family, that is so yesterday. That's everyone's doing that. We don't need that anymore. So now we need things like The Simpsons and Family Guy and Married with Children uh, how is dad portrayed in those three shows? He is a dumb, bumbling idiot, right? Homer Simpson knows nothing. Al Bundy knows nothing. He's just simply a cash register for his family uh, at the end of a week of working at the women's shoe store. And so even there you have a man portrayed as one who is uh, a servant to the women in the store and he comes home and he sits on the couch and puts his hand in his pants and hands out money to his kids as they come in and out. And his wife is dominant and domineering and the way she talks about him to her kids is that, hey, don't worry about your dad. He's a dummy. We'll get through this, right? Same with Marge Simpson. Uh, you know, your dad, he's, he, he doesn't know what he's doing. It's, it's amazing that the whole world hasn't exploded in some big nuclear wasteland because of, of his uh, incompetent work down at the power plant, right? <laughs> yeah. Sure, they're creating, a, they're creating a juxtaposition, right, by saying uh, this, is, this is what we thought marriage was, but here's what it really is. Here's reality. Here's how we really live our lives, right? It's not this sort of idealized notion of what the family is. It's actually this. Your dad, your husband, he's a dummy, right? <laughs> They're crazy. Yeah. The Christians are mocked, right? Right. Yeah. Um, 
What's that? <laughs> That's not to say I didn't enjoy The Simpsons. I certainly did. Um, so now, what do we start to see? Well, the father, the father in the home, he's just sort of a stand-in. We needed him to create the child, but after that, he's just sort of there. He doesn't play any integral role in the family, so he's free to go spend all of his time in the garage or out with his friends and everything else because mom's got it. She's got it taken care of. Moms take the dominant role and responsibility for family and for family guidance. Um, And so then dads are portrayed as being away from the home as much as possible. He's gone all the time. But then by the 2000s, we get to uh, modern family. Modern families sought to display a wide range of familial structures. And so you not only have a, uh, a family uh, like, like ours, where there's a, a mom and a dad and some children, but you also have uh, same-sex households that are trying to raise children who have been adopted. You have all kinds of different blends of family. And then uh, NBC came out with parenthood. Now, parenthood was to take the ideas of the 1960 and do a full uh, runaround and come back to those ideas. But now, it's a full circle to um, one family together, but there's a catch. The new, this, this new idea is that you have a stay-at-home dad and you have a high-powered lawyer mom with all the stresses of modern work life. And so from the 60s to now, we sort of see all this come full circle. And again, what are the influences? Well, the egalitarian kind of feminist spirit uh, alive here. Again, these things don't happen in a vacuum. If you had the show Modern Family or Parenthood in 1970, it it wouldn't have lasted one episode, right? It took time. We got there. Uh, and, and we're there now. And so now to uh, some people had done some reviews on these shows and they were getting blasted. How dare you question uh, that this is even something that we, uh, we wouldn't show, right? Why wouldn't we show that? Um, just yesterday, Felicia and I were looking at an adver- a makeup advertisement and it was like 30 people and out of 30 of them, about four of them were men all dressed like women, wearing makeup and part of this makeup advertisement. So, again, it's not been a long time since uh, that would have been unheard of, and now it's becoming more and more normalized. Why? Because my argument, again, my contention is that the full-scale onslaught of bringing these ideas into the institution have been so effective uh, that they're starting to branch out into more mainstream uh, avenues. So... That being said, does the Bible have anything to say about these things coming about in the way that they have or uh, that we need to be uh, watching out for them or that uh, anything like this could have been even imagined as a part of society? Can you think of anything scripturally that might be... Romans 1? Okay, yeah, we've, we've talked about Romans 1 several times uh, specifically. Let's go there. We can, we can look at this real quick. I'm going to skip down um, to where... Uh, let's go to verse uh, 21. 
Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, and this is talking of all mankind, we all have an inherent, innate knowledge of God and His existence and His power and His creativity. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, what he's saying there is they became idolaters. They looked instead from, they stopped looking to God and they started looking to the creation. And so the creation is what we worship now. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, and those who practice such things deserve to die, that not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, to me, it's very difficult to talk about all the things that we have talked about and to not see that laid out for us right here in Scripture, right? That these are the very things that the Bible has talked about. And so, as we think about the church and the church's interaction with these ideas and the church's influence, uh, being influenced by these things, uh, the Scriptures aren't silent. They're telling us exactly what we should expect to see living in any culture. Now, Paul's not Paul's not giving any kind of timeline here. He's not saying, like, this will happen one day in the future or these are some kinds of signs of something that's going to come. That's not his point. His point is, this is, this is where man's heart goes apart from God. No matter where you are, no matter when it is, this is man's natural inclination toward God. And the further a people moves away from the truth of Scripture the closer they get to this, to the point of God simply handing them over to their own debased minds and desires of their flesh to do what they want to do. And it's not a pretty sight. Yeah. Uh, talking about man, our natural inclination is to rebel against God sure. and to break His law. Yeah, that's, that's good. It's, it's not that, and again, this is always kind of the reality, is that it's not that when things are happening or being said uh, that we see the results of them being wrong and evil. It, it's, it's, the reality is that the way it's being presented sometimes has some semblance of truth to it, right? Yes, a child's natural inclination is to rebel against their parents. If you don't believe that, then I've got three that can hang out with you for a week. <laughs> right, Casey? Right, right, right. Sure. And why can't the boys do ballet? 
Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and our interactions as Christians in all of, you know, we, we face all this stuff in our workplaces. Your company policies and everything else are adjusting uh, to, to these ideas. And it's, again, one of the important reasons why we need to be thinking through what are the ideas, where do they come from, and then how do we interact with them. And that's the end of our class is really where we'll spend the time talking about uh, the church specifically in our response all this. So we're out of time. So let me pray and we'll, uh, we'll pick up next week. Father, thank you again for our time. I'm grateful for a fruitful discussion. I pray again that this is helpful, uh, that we're thinking more critically, Lord, that that's a part of all of this is that as the church, uh, we are thinking um, from the scriptures. We're not being influenced and directed by the ideas of the world. Uh, that our primary influence is, uh, is first and foremost uh, from, from the Bible. Even, even when it runs against the grain of everything we see around us, uh, Lord, may we be a people who are faithful to all that you have said. Let God be true and every man a liar. And we pray that we would stand faithfully with you in all that we are, all that we say, and all that we do. Lord, bless us now as we gather for corporate worship. May our time be pleasing and glorifying to you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.